Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by actual FBI cases. In this episode, I interview retired assistant special agent in charge, John Casenza. Now, John served in the FBI for 22 years and spent most of his career working counterterrorism cases and extraterritorial jurisdiction investigations. John explains that extraterritorial jurisdiction authorizes the FBI to investigate crimes against Americans that occur on foreign soil when the crimes, such as murder and kidnapping, are based on an act of terrorism. These extraterritorial jurisdiction cases took John all around the world to numerous countries and international venues. John talks about one counterterrorism case in particular involving a Tunisian operative and a European terrorist cell. He worked this case while he was assigned as the assistant legal attache, ALAT, in Italy. The case was worked out of Milan, Italy, and was unique in that it was worked jointly between the FBI and the Italian National Police with assistance from NCIS. The successful investigation resulted in charges of conspiracy, arms and explosive trafficking, and the use of fraudulent documents. We'll get to that interview in just a moment. I just want to again thank everyone for their continued support of this podcast. I am absolutely enjoying the tweets and the emails that I'm receiving on a daily basis from listeners. Keep them coming. And also, please continue to sign up for my newsletter. Thank you for doing that. And here's the interview. Hi, everyone. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you to my guest today, John Casenza. Hi, John. Hi, Jerry. Thanks for having me on. Now, I know you've had a varied career, a very exciting career, but you have selected a special case to talk about today. Can you give us a little tease? What are we going to be talking about? Sure, Jerry. There was a, I was assigned as an ALAT in the uh, legal attaché's office in Rome, and we had a case that was brought to us from our New York office with some vague information of a, a Tunisian who was traveling to Italy to meet up with another group which turned out to be a, a decent-sized cell in Italy, and they had plans to attack an American installation. So we were able to work jointly with the Italian National Police on the case, and, and it, it had some, some good results, a lot of work and some good results. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. But before we get into the case, tell us a little bit more about you. What were you doing before you joined the FBI, and when did you join the FBI? Okay. I was uh, when I got out of uh, college. I was a sales rep, a factory rep, for about four or five years. I had uh, it was a, a childhood dream to to be an FBI agent, and I had gone to graduate school while I was working at uh, Federal Express, and I got into the uh, sales program, entry level with Federal Express, and the whole time I was kind of working my way towards applying to the bureau, and then I. Uh, had the opportunity to do that. And, and I actually uh, started in February of 1991 with the Bureau. And I uh, went, you know, back then it was four months in Quantico. And so I got out in June of 91 and I was sent to the Tyson's Corner RA in Virginia, which is now in Manassas. It's uh, Tyson's Corner isn't there anymore. And 
I started off on a drug squad, which was a lot of fun, especially for a new agent getting out and doing doing a lot of work. Um, and then I worked. Everybody made a rotation uh, through uh, the background squads. We did background investigations. I did the DOJ. There was uh, in Washington or signed either DOJ or the White House. And so I had the uh, uh, Department of Justice. So I did that for about a year and got some some good experience. It was, you know, I'd get you out there to, to talk to a lot of people doing interviews. About a year, I was transferred into the uh, Washington field office, which at the time was in Buzzards Point in D.C. And the first squad I worked on was um, a state sponsor of terrorism squad, which I, I really had a lot of fun uh, doing. And it was it was really good work. The state sponsor squad was unique in that only a few offices in the Bureau worked both counterterrorism criminal cases and counterintelligence cases on the same squad. And they had uh, an invisible wall and you couldn't cross over the wall at that time. So you had to separate the cases, but you got to work both of them, which was interesting and uh, and a lot of fun. Uh, From there, I went to a Middle East terrorism squad and worked Hamas cases. Hamas at the time was kind of a fledgling organization, but they had a lot of support and structure in the United States. So I worked Hamas cases and had a lot of good work. And, And on that squad was I worked uh, extraterritorial investigations. So any time Americans are um, assaulted, kidnapped, killed overseas, uh, the FBI can work the cases uh, either with, with the locals or you know through assistance with Washington. So could you explain? Give us an example, a couple of examples of those type of cases. Is that where there is an American at a club in Germany when the club gets blown up? Any time an American uh, overseas is, is murdered, violently assaulted, kidnapped um, as an act of terrorism, then there's extraterritorial squads in the Bureau that work the cases. What um, Most of the ones I worked the first couple of years were in Israel. I think I made 13 uh, TDY trips to Israel to investigate Americans that were, that were injured or killed. Uh, at the time, Hamas was setting uh, bombs off in buses. Uh, frequently and there were you know a large number of american victims so we would we would go over there um any any we did a ton of interviews because we were we could interview any um, american citizens um, by ourselves which we did and of course shared all that information uh, with the israelis and and they allowed us to assist in certain matters of the case pretty frequently any assistance we could provide we would provide and, and we would get briefings we would try to add intelligence uh to their investigation and um, work the cases hard. Most of the Israeli cases, you know, arrests were made or we found out later that the victims were, you know, were killed uh, or, or excuse me, the uh, subjects were killed during fighting. Um, but at that time, that was that, that was probably the biggest one. Um, it seemed like, uh, you know, pretty frequently we were headed over there. Um, Cobor Towers, when there were 19 American Air Force personnel killed, in the bombing of the dormitory, um, we worked with the Saudis for months on the investigation to, to try to, uh, you know, track down the uh, the subjects of the, you know, the bombers. Um, so that's the extraterritorial investigation. So and 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 in the case of the the, the recent uh, attacks in in Paris and in Brussels, then any Americans that would have been unfortunately killed in those instances. There are also agents on this extraterritorial squad 
who would be working um, to investigate their their deaths. Right, right. Either either any assistance at all that we could give to the French or, uh, you know, other countries working hand in hand at times, you know, depending on the level of cooperation that's, that's needed. Well, that's pretty interesting. I don't I I know I wasn't aware of that. So I would assume that, uh, you know, many of the people listening were not aware of that activity. I was assuming that uh, the American embassy uh, would contact the, you know, the family in the United States and say, you know, we're sorry to report that this has happened and that's the end of it. But there is an actual uh, investigation as best as we can Absolutely. to get as much information to the family Absolutely. as possible. At, at the very least, a parallel investigation um, to try to to try to you know assist the lead police force or agency or run an investigation on on our own uh, you know as far as we can and provide as much uh, information as possible. You know, at times it goes beyond that where you will find a. a a subject that has fled one country into another, and will you know go to the go to the third country and the fourth country, and then however long it takes. Some of the arrests have been made in extraterritorial cases. Uh, we had one at WFO. The arrest was made 12 years after the attack, and it sends a message that we're you know the U.S. government's not gonna gonna forget. I, I mean that that that's a, a bit of valuable information that you're sharing with. Uh, with me and the listeners here, it makes me proud, you know, to know that, uh, you know, we're, we take that extra step to make sure answers uh, are brought back, our people answer to the, the, the killing of Americans, even if it is overseas. Right, right absolutely. I worked on the uh, Hamas squad for about three or four years and then actually transferred over to the extraterritorial squad, which was all t- extraterritorial cases. And at the time, they were worked at uh, Washington Miami or Los Angeles. And from there, I went to counterterrorism division at headquarters and worked the same investigations in the Middle East unit and the extraterritorial cases from 98 till 2000, about two and a half years. And in 2000, I went to uh, the legal attache's office in Rome as an ALAT. I had the counterterrorism and counterintelligence programs. And uh, I was in Italy for four years. Um, and enjoyed it. Italians were professional and a first-rate organization. The Italian National Police and uh, really had some some good relations and, and enjoyed it. I uh, came back, uh, lucky enough to get back to Philadelphia in 2004, and I was on the Philadelphia Joint Terrorism Task Force for a total of four years, the old Squad 17. And then I went to the Gang Task Force for two years and ended up, um, had the opportunity to uh, work as the criminal ASAC in Philadelphia for the last two and a half years or so. And I, I retired in two, the end of 2013. Now, let me ask you, when you were in Italy, do you speak Italian? Uh, when I was a child, Italian was spoken in the house, but I, I really didn't pick much of it up. So the Bureau sent me to language school uh, before I went to Italy. So I went from headquarters to language school for about three months. Um, and then when I got to Italy, continued uh, every morning, continued the, the lessons for about the first year and a half. And uh, how did you do? Did you get proficient? I, you know, I, the, the Bureau and the State Department test you on a scale of one to four. And I, when I got there, I tested as a two with both the State Department and the Bureau. And I felt confident 
in meetings. Um, I, it certainly wasn't as good as other people in the uh, embassy. And, and the Italians are very gracious. If you didn't understand uh, something or needed some help, they're always willing to give it to you. So they were good, good that way, good group. Fantastic. Okay, so are you ready to sure. talk to us about that case? Sure. So this uh, goes back in the early fall of 2000. Our uh, office in New York, the New York field office, sent us a lead and provided information that a, a male using the alias Umar al-Muhajir was joining a group of three Islamic extremists. They were already in Italy and they had vague plans uh, to con- conduct attacks against an unknown, at the time, an unknown American target in Italy. So, you know, the information looked pretty good. We didn't have a lot of it, but they did send a phone number. Um, and we ran the phone number in Italy, and it came back to a man named Hasid Sami Ben Kamayas. Uh, Kamayas was a Tunisian. We had some information pretty quickly that he was a member of the Tunisian combatant group um, in Tunisia. And so we, we went to the Italian National Police and requested a meeting. And we shared this information with the INP, and you could tell right away that they were interested. And, and they asked us to wait a few minutes, and they called a number of um, investigators into the conference room and provided us a sketch of an ongoing investigation that they had regarding the same subject, Sammy Ben Kamayas. Oh, wow. What a coincidence. Yeah, it was, it was actually pretty good timing. And, and um, they had a number of associates already semi-identified. And they had a code name, which was Al-Muhajirun, which stuck around for the whole investigation. And this was the early stages of their investigation. Um, Is there a particular significance to that code name? It means the emigrants. And they, they were all they had all left Tunisia and North Africa and ended up in Italy. So that that was where the name came from originally. Kamayas, he came to Milan in 1998 with a man named Abdel Qadar as Saeed. Uh, Saeed was also associated with the Tunisian combatant group. Uh, he brought Kamayas to Italy to be his recruiter and to be his document man. Um, they had a, a large-scale operation throughout Europe at the time in document forgery. And so in July 2000, probably about s- six weeks before we were involved with the Italians before a meeting. Kamais's apartment was raided during a, during an INP investigation into immigrant smuggling. And during the search of his apartment, the police found a photocopy of a Yemeni passport belonging to a subject that they knew pretty well. His name was Al-Sakaf. Al-Sakaf was later arrested in Jordan for having ties to the Mujahideen in Chechnya. And this is the beginning. A lot of these guys that we, we ended up running into throughout Europe and through all the legates in Europe, all were significant players. So he was the first one. Uh, and so this started the INP investigation into Kamayas. So we began sharing details and for us mainly background information on Kamayas. And we got a lot of information from the Italians. And pretty quickly we learned that he had spent close to two years on and off at training camps in Afghanistan, mainly for logistics. He was a document forger and a recruiter. That was his that was his shtick. So he wasn't necessarily necessarily there for any type of training, uh, fighting. Not that we were aware of at the time, uh, Jerry. That's that's a good question because some of that will come up later. So he was associated with S. Saeed, and S. Saeed's job was to recruit and send fighters to to first Chechnya, um, and then later on Afghanistan. So 
we started to get a little bit more information that Camayas wasn't just a, a forger, but a pretty accomplished one. And so later, probably mid-fall of 2000, the FBI director at the time, Director Free, was visiting Italy and meeting with the Italian National Police Director, Johnny De Gennaro. And so we requested Director Free to ask Director De Gennaro if we could have access into the case and possibly work it jointly. At the same time, the Italian National Police agents that we were working with requested the same from Director De Gennaro. Um, so at their level, they decided that we could we could work together and that we could actually work the case jointly. So, uh, What's the significance to that? Because I, I know that I've talked to other uh, legats and ALATs that have worked for the FBI as a representative overseas, and most of the time it's a liaison position. Right. That's, most of the time it's a liaison position. The, the difference here was that we were actually, uh, Joe Genovese and I were deputized into the Italian National Police for this one specific case. It was case-specific, but because we were deputized, it gave us direct access to the uh, INP investigative material and vice versa. So we, we, we truly worked the case jointly. They had the lead, uh, of course, over there. And um, Joe Genovese, who was the, the legate, was a, Joe was a really experienced guy. He had, uh, he had originally worked with the Italians during the uh, Judge Falcone assassination by the mafia and spent a lot of time over there and uh, worked hand in hand with the Italians during both the Falcone and the Borsellino murders, uh, two Italian judges. So again, this gave us direct access to the investigative material. Um, so Joe and I traveled up to Milan and Varese uh, province, soon about 20, 25 minutes outside of Milan, where Camaius lived. And that's the first time we met the Digos investigators that we were going to work with. And Digos is the special investigations division of the Italian National Police that work a lot of their high-level cases, um, CT cases, OC cases up north. Uh, and we also met the prosecutor, who was a really interesting guy, Stefano D'Ambroso. Stefano was very talented and accomplished uh, prosecutor and had a ton of experience. And in fact, every time we met him, he was he was with a, a team of bodyguards because of the cases he had worked previously and threats that were made against him. But uh, a very aggressive guy. We found Camayas owned a small cleaning business, which we found generated just about no income. Um, and later we searched, his apartment was searched, and there were no business records and very little equipment. So we, we, we knew that that was um, pretty much a front. And about that time, we found that the Italians had a, a number of very well-placed uh, listening devices that would become really important later on in the investigation. But they were uh, really well-placed and were providing good information right from the start that we, we were uh, able to generate a number of leads at the beginning. And one of them was, uh, one of them led to the location of a safe house in Varese. Uh, I think it was in the town of Gallarate, which would become important to the investigation as we went forward. Um, so at this point, on our end, what we were doing, uh, we had brought uh, the agents from New York in and gave the Italians a, a full brief of everything that we had. Um, we were doing a lot. How many agents from New York were coming in? They were coming to to assist you with this matter? Yeah, originally two, and then they would switch out. And then as we got going, we had um, TDYers from a number of different field offices. We had TDYers from headquarters and a ton of uh, TDYers or temporary duty assistance in um, for, for language, for translations, for analytical help, 
um, and then course investigators as well. So we, we ended up having a big group uh, there. In fact, at one point we needed help and we went to NCIS, who had a spinoff investigation into this group. Um, Lou Cosentino was the attache and he provided us with a, a bunch of really good Navy translators as well. So we got a lot of help at, at the beginning and all through the investigation, really. So at this point, we're just doing a good deal of basic investigative work assisting the INP, um, identifying subjects who had ties or connections to the group, determining what their ties were, if, if, if they had any, um, and what the different roles were. And we were trying to wrap as many people as we could into the investigation so we could start working backwards into their background and, and you know, who, what, where they were. And the Bureau at the time were also providing a lot of technical help through equipment and at the time, some high-tech equipment, which which really helped out as well. So at that point, we found out that Kamayas was actually convicted in Tunisia, convicted in absentia in Tunisia and sentenced to 10 years. Uh, received He received a 10-year sentence, but he fled before he was arrested. What was he uh, convicted for? Uh, association with a terrorist group. Oh, the, well, that's significant. Yeah, so that, that was significant, and that, that got a, a, a little bit more attention. And at the same time, uh, and this, this really got us going in the right direction, the, we started to get a lot of information uh, from the, the telephone over here, from the Italians, that Camayas was in both telephonic and physical contact with cells all over Europe, in Germany, in Spain, in the U.K., um, in Belgium, in France, and he was talking to these guys all the time. And so whoever he would talk to, we would we would try to identify. And then he began physically traveling through Europe to meet these guys. And it led to a number of really good um, surveillances. Um, but uh, one of the contacts that he met was uh, from the UK. His name was Abu Doha. And we knew of Abu uh, Doha because he was his name was found in the um, on a guy named Ahmed Rassam, who was arrested coming over the Canadian border into uh, Washington state by a very alert customs agent um, who just noticed the guy was a little nervous. Something wasn't right. They pulled him over. They opened his trunk and he had a whole trunk load full of explosives that down the road uh, through investigation the bureau determined that the target was LAX on, uh, on the millennium on New Year's Eve of 99. Wow. And, and that's something I don't know. Is, 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 has that been made public before? Yes. Yes. Uh, Rassam was arrested and convicted. And um, some of this information, including Abu Doha, was actually used at trial when this uh, group went to trial as um, as background. And so we know Kamais was in direct contact with a number of other cells. And we were sharing the information throughout Europe with our legal attaches. And at the same time, the Italians were sharing the same information through the European police forces. So it was, it was a pretty good system because our legates would then contact the police departments and vice versa. And so we had a we, we really had a large group looking into the some of the same information. So it worked out good. It filled a lot of gaps. We had a ton of gaps to begin with. And with help from the legates and the European police departments, we, we were able to, to start filling the gaps. And John, do you think the fact that he was looking at targets, American targets in Italy, was because uh, the group was frustrated that they were unable to get into the U.S. to target Americans? Yeah, you know, Terry, that had come up, and it, it could very well be true, especially Rassam arrested at the border like that with with a plan, uh, you know, a planned attack in the U.S. and you know because of a, a very alert customs official kind of 
was thwarted. So it very well could be they went to Europe. Uh, so we, we were we were doing a little bit more surveillances, and then one of which became pretty significant. Um, Camaius left Italy, and he went through, I think, first Lyon, France, and then Paris, France, and into Pamplona, Spain, and eventually, <clears throat> excuse me, Valencia, Spain, where the meeting was held. And a number of European police departments really worked well, and this surveillance went through probably five or six countries, but our guy ended up going uh, through Italy, France, and Spain. And at this meeting were all the heads of the cells in Europe, uh, in, including Doha, um, including a number of others that we'll, we'll touch on as we go here. Camayas, with the Spanish police lost Camayas after the meeting, but were able to place him with a number of these um, cell leaders in Europe, one of which was um, the French police identified Camayas is having met with a French subject who at the time we knew uh, as Meliani and Meliani was implicated in a planned attack on a crisp on the Christmas market in Strasbourg, France. And what happened is the German police raided an apartment less than a week before the attack was planned. And in a briefcase found all kind of information on uh, maps of the market, ways in and out of the market. And that was the target was the market. And it was the first kind of thwarted attack at that time, but it came close. The French police said, look, this was in, you know, within a couple of days of actually going off. And so we identified Meliani as actually Mohammed Ben Sakaria, and he'll come up again uh, down the road here. So at this point, we're working pretty well with the INP. The New York office was great. They, they were sending investigators on a regular basis, um, TDY agents. We had Analysts, linguists, legates were helping us out. We were running everything we had through other U.S. government databases for intel. And at that time, it was about to get a little busier. We, we were able to develop access to a human source, which became a big part of the investigation. And it wasn't, it wasn't the biggest part, but they were in a position to provide identifications. They generated a ton of leads. And it really started to fill more gaps, which is what we were trying to do. So we're trying to narrow the group down so we could identify everybody. Well, that's key. Absolutely yeah, that, key to yeah. have a, a human source like that. Yeah, that was a big part, and, and they did a great job. Um, so uh, Camayas's main location in the city of Milan was the Islamic Cultural Center. Um, the ICI was later, after this investigation, was closed down by the Italians, but at the time, it was kind of the centerpiece in Milan for Camayas and his group. They would go in there and some days not come out for you know, two or three days. They'd be in the uh, in the ICI overnight, two, three days. Sometimes they come in four, five, six times a day. The ICI, which was good at the time, was under constant surveillance. We had some good human source coverage. Um, and the ICI again? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, the Italian, uh, the, or the, uh, the Italian, the Islamic Cultural Institute. Okay. And in fact, the, the former director of the ICA was a man named Anwar Shaban. So he was an Egyptian um, who was killed in fighting in Bosnia in the mid to late 90s. And at the time, the Milan prosecutors called the ICI a substantial crossroads for Egyptian terrorists in Milan and later kind of morphed into you know, more North African. But it was a, it was a hot spot. Now, is this a... A religious institution, um, and if it is in Italy, are there certain privileges or 
Yes, it, it was. It was a sanctuary that uh, you know you have to to be careful about. Absolutely, absolutely, Jerry. It was um, it was a Islamic uh, cultural center, the ICI, and there was a uh, you know study groups, uh, prayer sessions. There was a mosque inside, so they they were protected by Italian law. So that was a little bit of an obstacle. So once they went in there, it was kind of a safe haven for them. Um, and again, after this investigation, the Italians shut it down because there was enough information that, as to what was going on inside the the, the uh, institute at that time. But at the time that we were investigating, that it, w- it was kind of a safe haven, and they used it as such. So we were we were continuing to receive a, a lot of fragmented information, um, you know, bits and pieces here and there from from a number of different sources. That a group who at the time we hadn't identified, but we thought Camayas was involved with it, was was planning an attack on the embassy, or we even got some information that there might be an attack on the embassy water supply in mm-hmm. Rome, and you know it was, it was bits and pieces coming in from all over. So we had a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, later, intel and investigation did determine Camayas. Uh, was involved in some of this planning, and that information was used at trial um, down the road. So all this information's coming in, and in early January, January, I think January 5th of 2001, the U.S. Embassy in Rome and the U.S. Embassy in the Vatican, the Holy See, and a number of the consulates were shut down due to credible threat information. And what really tipped it over the edge was at the same time, a wall was discovered altered in the 2,000-year-old Roman tunnels that are that surround the embassy, you know there's a whole another uh, Roman city beneath the modern-day city, and the city of Rome inspects the um, the tunnels on a regular basis. And for security reasons, or for infrastructure for reasons, are both for both. Okay. And, and that's a good point because the the, the engineer that was down there uh, saw a, a hole that he thought was an early punched hole in a 2,000-year-old stone wall. And that was enough to, um, you know, shut the embassy down based on all the other information that was coming in. So the State Department, through the the regional security officer, the RSO, implemented immediate safety measures and got extra security in. And we had an FBI uh, TD wire from Philadelphia, actually, at the time, who was helping us work the case, volunteered to go down into the tunnels with the um, with the the city workers and the the INP. And he went down into the tunnels for, for about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, took pictures and you know, diagrammed a little bit. They were able to relocate the hole and determine that it was recently you know, knocked through. And at about the same time, I think within a couple of days of the embassy being shut, the German police uh, arrested the cell that was in Germany. And the cell was led by the man that we knew as Meliani, who was Mohammed Dakaria. And so after the arrest, Within an hour or two, we picked up an overhear from Germany to Camayas stating something to the effect that they've arrested our brothers, half the group, and they found the arms warehouse. So that was pretty significant. And then a, a short time later, Camayas replied to a caller regarding the same arrest. And it said, tell him to send me his passport. The stamps are all ready. And again, he was a he was a proficient document forger. So we kept getting information that people were sending their documents to him. And he was he was forging copies or or uh, stamps. And then after that, we Kamais actually called a man named um, Tariq Marouf, who was a key figure in the German case, 
And he told Maruf that you need to cover yourself now and you know how. So that was all information we were tying Kamias into the into the groups. Uh, at the same time that the safe house that we had mentioned earlier was providing very good intel, uh, the INP had set up a lookout um, pretty close to the safe house down the street, but it was looking down into it at an angle. So we were able to really get some good photographs and um, and video that led to uh, some some good surveillances. And we had really good equipment at the time, so we were able to get a lot of photographs. At the time, we didn't have a whole lot of them identified, but we were able to send copies to other organizations and other agencies. And little by little down the road, a number of those photos were identified um, based on these original photos from from the uh, lookout. Again, we were using a ton of TDY resources, and I mentioned earlier we uh, NCIS offered to assist us with with additional translators, which we were uh, appreciative. And they actually we briefed each other. They had a spinoff case that they were working with the Italian Carabinieri, which is a military branch um, that has uh, policing duties as well. And down the road after the original arrests were made, um, the the Carbs along with uh, you know, the assistance from the NCIS made another set of arrests. There are actually uh, three sets of arrests down the road. Um, so we're now at about the January, February time frame in 2001. And we thought the case was pretty solid. We had 16 subjects and identified in Italian cells that had ties to other European groups. We wanted to, to try to keep going with it to see if we could, you know, keep providing information to our counterparts and keep tying people in um, to the group because there were a lot of phone calls, a lot of photographs that we hadn't identified. Were you afraid, though, that as this cell continues to to operate, that at some point they are going to to go through with this attack? Yeah, that absolutely, Jerry, and that was on everybody's mind. And in fact, in in mid March, everything changed. Uh, the investigation was really ramped up and intensified because of just that reason. Uh, a number of troubling overhears were picked up on, on uh, one of the microphones, uh, one of which was a conversation between Kamias and his group where he says, I'd like to learn to use the drug and see the effect on someone breathing it, uh, but the formula is in the hands of someone else. And then he goes on to say they've created a way to combine the fumes with the explosive and the product is better. It's more efficient because, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but the liquid, uh, as you as you can open it, it suffocates people. So that kind of changed uh-huh. everything. And and um, in, you know, in Italy, the prosecutors uh, make a lot of the investigative decisions. And, and Stefano at that point said, we're moving forward with the arrest. So the arrest took place. The original set of arrests took place in April 2001. And that was Camayas and five others uh, who were arrested and charged with material support for terrorism. Uh, we did not recover any explosives in any of the searches and some related terrorism charges. And remember, this was the investigation was all prior to 9-11. So post yeah. 9-11, the Italian laws changed drastically. So the penalties were much more harsh, much, much more stringent. But this case was grandfathered. So Camayas received a five year sentence. Um, the other four group members all received between four and a half, five years. S. Said, who was his contact and who brought him into Italy, escaped, but he was later killed by U.S. forces fighting in Torbor in Afghanistan um, towards the end of 2001. And 
the the actual um, laws that the prosecutor uh, won the case on were criminal association laws that were really designed for dealing with mafia cases. And again, all that changed, but this this case was grandfathered, even though uh, the set the the conviction and the sentencing were in February of '02. Um, the case was grandfathered into the older older laws. So Kamaya served his full five year sentence and then was uh, later deported to Tunisia to begin serving his um, sentence in absentia. He received 10 years. Um, he didn't see only served a couple years of that, I believe, and then was released uh, by the Tunisian government. Do we know where he is now? I mean, is he is still considered a threat? Um, I, I don't know, to be honest with you, Jerry. I, he was he started serving his sentence as soon as he was uh, deported from Italy. And I, I believe he served a couple of years. And then there was a, a regime change in Tunisia and the new government released him. And then I, I don't know after that. Um, so there was a second wave of arrests later and towards the end of 2001. And then a third round in October of 2002. So there were a total of 15 arrests, 15 convictions, most within right around that five year range. And then as Saeed was killed in fighting, who was the 16th indictment. A couple of things at the end. And in 2000, in April of 2002, I traveled to Guantanamo Bay, the original Camp X-Ray. There were seven or eight North Africans who had spent time in Italy or were, or were recruited in Italy um, that I went to talk to in order to try to get a little bit more of a, you know, a picture of how the recruiting and the operations went in Italy and Europe. And lastly, after 9-11, we went back with the Italian National Police and pretty much scrubbed the entire investigation from top to bottom to see if there were any ties to the 9-11 attackers. What'd you find out? We, you know, the, we, these groups were the original Al Qaeda groups in Europe. You know, kind of decentralized cells, but we didn't have any direct ties to the attackers. The Spanish thought they had identified one that was a possible um, in their investigation, but I, I don't, I don't know if that was ever confirmed. And the, the prosecutor's office and the, the Italian police said this was kind of the first time that they recognized the existence. Uh, of European cells with strong ties to um, Afghanistan and prior to that, the fighting in Chechnya. So a lot of these guys, um, we found that from the safe house, and the safe house was mainly used as an indoctrination center for new recruits, place where the recruits went right before they traveled. And, and we know now that they traveled from Italy to Switzerland and then from Switzerland to Pakistan and later walked right across the border in Afghanistan and prior to that uh, from Pakistan uh, into Chechnya through some additional logistics. And um, so this, that's pretty much it. The, um, well, this is pretty fascinating. Could you, and we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but could you just kind of go through what made this so different? Because I spent a lot of time um, talking about, how TV and movies uh, show the FBI conducting international investigations and, and they make it seem so um, easy when in most cases it's, it's really just a liaison function. Now I have to eat my words because in this particular case, it was actual active investigation. Can you go over that a little bit more and tell us the significance of this case and if there are other cases 
um, now, especially after 9-11, where we are working hand in hand with foreign uh, governments and foreign countries on these type of uh, terrorism or counterterrorism cases? Sure. Um, I, it, it happens more today than it did in the past. Uh, if we're invited in uh, with a foreign police force or a foreign government, then we can certainly work the case with them. In this particular instance, we were we were deputized in the case specific. I mean, we couldn't receive that type of information on other cases. With the terrorism cases, though, a lot of times, you know, the, the Bureau is asked for assistance and we're ready to, to provide it. We were, we're always ready to provide it. These uh, cases cross borders. They're, they're, they're international. Um, you know, this case was a little bit of an example in the early days. There were cells all over Europe. And when they would meet, they would all come together with all the heads of the cells. And there were six, seven, sometimes eight, you know, police forces involved in the surveillances and in, in the, uh, you know, the debriefings. But, yeah, the, the Bureau today is, you know, especially extraterritorial cases, um, if if there's a crime against an American and based on an act of terrorism, then, you know, if it's if it's a friendly country, um, a lot of times the Bureau will come in and and, and, uh, and work with them. We, we did that in um, in Cobar Towers in the late uh, 90s. We did it at uh, Dar es Salaam. Uh, in Tanzania, when the embassy was was attacked, we worked. Uh, we had a whole group of investigators uh, doing interviews and, and investigation hand in hand with the, with the Tanzanian uh, police forces, and uh, it worked out well. They they were actually uh, outstanding. They didn't have the equipment or the resources that we had, but they were they were they were professional policemen and detectives, and uh, we were able to really work well with them. Can we then assume that, you know, as far as France and, and what's going on in Belgium, that there is some type of uh, involvement from the FBI in the United States in, in some of those investigations, too? You know, Terry, I, I know I, I, would, I would assume there's a lot of working together and sharing of information. Uh, other than that, I, I really don't have the... Uh, you know, the knowledge anymore as, as to how, how closely they're working. I, I would assume that they're sharing quite a bit of information. I hope yeah, so. Yeah, which is huge. I mean, it's, it's you know, you, there's always gaps in your investigations. And when you can meet with another, uh, you know, police force or intel service that can, then you can fill those gaps and you can fill gaps for them, that's really important. I guess this, this uh, case and the successful outcome of it should give us all hope you know, that, um, you know, we do have a handle on uh, these type of act, this, this type of activity. And, you know, there are so many more instances, I, I take it, where we have prevented, uh, you know, a, an attack that most of us don't know anything about. Yeah, I, I would say that's definitely accurate. And, and there's a lot of good work that's being done by the, by the, you know, the men and ladies out there. But it's an ongoing every day is a different uh a different scenario, a different group, and, uh, you know, doing a great job, but it's uh, it's a little bit scary, absolutely. So where were you in September of 2001? I was uh, I was in the office in, in Rome at my desk, and it was, uh, we were six hours ahead, so it was just before three o'clock in the afternoon when I got a call from headquarters, and uh, boy, that, you know, uh, it's one of those times everybody remembers exactly where you were. Absolutely. And so with you working this, you know, these type of matters, actually actively trying to prevent 
um, you know, bodily harm or, or, or harm to Americans in Italy, and then you hear that this has actually happened on American soil, and you are thousands of miles away, I can only imagine what was going through your head. Yeah, it was, it was an awful feeling, uh, you know, uh, being so far away. But, uh, you know, we went to work. The Italians were great. We uh, we met that evening and, and we, you know, started uh, going over case by case, subject by subject, individual by individual for weeks. And we had the help of uh, and the Italians. All, all the services at the embassy in Rome really came together nice. It was everybody had worked well. Um, our, our intelligence cousins, uh, every piece of information that we could come up with, and, and we scrubbed our case as, as as much as we could. Everything possible in that case, we scrubbed. So, you know, we went to work right away as, as everybody else did. But it was it was a kind of a you know a, a little bit of a helpless feeling seeing that back home. You know where you're where you're from. Is there anything else you know in your career, especially uh, again? with what's happening, you know, in France, in Belgium, and uh, how hard we're working here in the United States for uh, the domestic terrorism and counterterrorism cases we're involved in. You've spent so much of your career devoted to that type of violation. Is there is there anything that you want to tell us about, or is there anything that you can think about that you'd like to add? The extraterritorial cases, when, when I was working those cases, we heard good squad, good people, but you really get to see the, uh, you know, the victims. You're dealing with families, American families of victims. And, and um, you know, it, it's that part of it you don't always get to see outside of work in these type of cases. And um, it really kind of steals you to try to do a good job and, and you know, great support and good squad. And uh, that was good work. But, you know, the type of cases you remember. And they were good cases to work because there was, you know, you always remember there was that, that victim out there, the American victim. So, John, well, I mean, what a fascinating career. And um, we didn't even talk about um, you know, organized crime and, and gang cases that uh, you supervised. Yeah, it, it, you know, interesting cases, uh, great investigators, great agents. The task forces are, uh, you know, I, I think are the best thing that, you know, the Bureau's done, bringing all the talents from all these different agencies together and working together it just it pulls everybody's strength some organizations are better at certain things and, you know that concept with the JTTF with the gang task forces um, have, has been fantastic okay so when did you retire I retired in November of 13 so I've, I've been out uh, going on two and a half years in a couple months and what have you been doing I, I work for a company in uh, Camden, New Jersey, called Mafco Worldwide, and it's an interesting company. It's, it's kind of a niche company. They they, be, they began operations in 1850, and then they've been in business continuously since then. So uh, I do the compliance for the for the company, and uh, company imports licorice root from. Uh, along the 52nd parallel in Central Asia and brings it back and in and, and the factory in Camden and we have locations in, in, in France and in China. It's an interesting job. And I'm really enjoying it. So it sounds like and, and not to take anything away from from the job, but it sounds like you're you're sitting behind a desk a lot. Actually, there's a, there's a lot of travel because I have responsibility for training our suppliers and our distributors and our commercial agents in uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and the Office of Foreign Asset Control. You know, everybody says that, what do you miss? And you miss the people in the Bureau. I mean, they're probably the best people uh, 
anywhere. So you do, you know, I certainly miss the people, you know, even though I'm enjoying the new job. And that's the end of the interview. John Casenza has had a fascinating career, and I'm so glad he was able to share a few of his cases with us. As always, I have photos of John at jerrywilliams.com, and I also have links to newspaper articles about the case he talked about working in Italy. Just want to give you an update on my review. I promised uh, a couple of listeners that I would uh, give my opinion on the show Quantico, what they had right and what they had wrong, with the understanding that it is a TV show and it is absolutely okay for them to be creative in making an entertaining production. I do want to make sure that listeners have uh, information about what actually occurs uh, at the FBI Academy. Not so much sex, I can tell you that. That blog post on Quantico, what they had right, what they had wrong, will be posted a few days after the season finale on May 15th. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. Thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again next week for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.